listening to Ohio V, The World, an Ohio history podcast. The only podcast dedicated exclusively to the history of the Buckeye State. Stream and donate to the show at OhioVTheWorldPodcast.com. Now, here's your host, Alex Hasty. Hey guys, welcome back. It's episode 14 of Ohio vs. the World. And today, in our penultimate episode of the first season, we are going to be talking about Ohio versus baseball. Our national pastime. Still one of my favorite sports, although it's declining in popularity with younger people these days. America's national pastime is just so linked to our social and economic and political history here in in America. The era we're going to talk about, early baseball, when baseball really was America's pastime. It was the only game uh, that people really cared about. Every year when spring training comes around, I I try to make a point to watch Ken Burns' nine-part documentary from the the late 80s, Baseball. Uh, It's still usually on Netflix. It's just an awesome... Uh, awesome thing. And almost every year I try and do it, my wife, Miss Ohio vs. the World, is always asking, oh, you're watching baseball again. She rolls her eyes. It is one of my favorite documentaries. Um, and today we're going to be talking about four stories from the earlier days in baseball history. We're going to talk with Craig Brown about Moses Fleetwood Walker, the first openly African-American professional baseball player. He played. He's an Ohioan. Uh, and played for the Toledo Blue Stockings and basically what was the American League in the 1880s. We'll talk about Craig's mission to bring Moses Fleetwood Walker Day to Ohio. Uh, we'll also talk with the athletic director of Capital University, Roger Engels, uh, formerly the AD at Ohio Wesleyan, which is the home of Branch Rickey, the baseball pioneer and innovator um, from Southern Ohio who then moved to Delaware, Ohio, went to Ohio Wesley, and ended up becoming the baseball coach and athletic director there, and ultimately was the man who signed Jackie Robinson to break the color barrier in Major League Baseball in 1947. We'll talk about Branch Rickey and his incredible career with Roger Engels. Third, we'll look at the 1919 World Series, the Black Sox scandal, that led the Cincinnati Reds, Major League Baseball's oldest professional team, to their first world championship in 1919. We'll look at how the Black Sox scandal went down, how the World Series was fixed by gamblers like Arnold Rothstein in 1919. And for that, we'll talk with Rick Hewn, a noted baseball historian and author. And lastly, we'll look at the story of Merkel's Boner. We'll relive the 1908 championship of the Chicago Cubs, their last championship until just last fall when they defeated Ohio's Cleveland Indians on the shores of Lake Erie in Game 7 of the 2016 World Series. An incredible game. My brother was there, uh, went into extra innings, and and the Cubs finally, after 108 years, won their first world championship. Since Merkel's Boner, Toledo, Ohio's own Fred Merkel, that's the name of the play, Merkel's Boner, the controversial play that led to the Cubs' last 1908 world championship. Uh, Real quick, we had... uh, 
Ohio Be the World. Had an awesome time. Thanks to all our volunteers at Nightlight 614. Again, go to nightlight614.com. It's an outdoor movie series. But we want to thank our um, all of our fo- volunteers. You guys were great. Jordan and Brody and Adrian, uh, Grant and Travis and Pickles, um, Eric, all the other guys. And we had such a great time. So thank you so much. Uh, check out Nightlight 614. And thanks to Patrick Klein for involving us in that. Um, our beer of the episode, we are going down to Cincinnati, and we're going to be having a rounding third IPA. It's a red IPA, 6.5% alcohol, uh, from Mad Tree Brewing, madtreebrewing.com, their uh, tasting room and, and, and brew pub and all that stuff, uh, just north of downtown Cincy, right off 71 on Madison Ave, uh, Madison Road, sorry. Go check them out. They've got a great brunch on the weekends. Uh, they make incredibly cool beer. They're rounding third, uh, Mad Tree Brewing's Red IPA. It's got the mustache like you'd see on Mr. Red, the old-timey Cincinnati Reds mascot. Uh, great beer. Again, Mad Tree Brewing, another one of those awesome breweries here in Ohio doing their thing. But we got no more time to waste, guys. It's uh, grab your peanuts, grab your Cracker Jacks, because it's time for Episode 14, Ohio versus Baseball. story today is about the first ever African-American professional baseball player in Ohio in Moses Fleetwood Walker. Fleet Walker played for the Toledo Blue Sox during the 1884 season. They were part of the American Association, which would later become the American League. And our guest today is Craig Brown, an adjunct uh, lecturer at Kent State and Stark State in Northeast Ohio, former Columbiana County recorder. Uh, for eight years, and Craig is spearheading the effort for what's called Moses Fleetwood Walker Day, October 7th. It's already passed through the Senate um, and has now moved to the floor of the Ohio House of Representatives. Craig is trying to make October 7th a day to remember Fleet Walker for his many accomplishments as a civil rights pioneer, as a great baseball player, and again, as the first openly African-American professional baseball player. We talk with, with Craig about Moses' youth growing up in Ohio in a city called Mount Pleasant and later moving into uh, Steubenville, Ohio, where he grew up. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. It, it is an honor to be on your podcast and work toward communicating Ohio history. Mount Pleasant is a very small community even today, a couple of streets, um, very old. It's a very old Quaker community. Um, pacifist, nonviolent, um, very little racial overtones at all. And that's where he was actually born. Um, his parents are both African Americans, but both of them have a white parent. Uh, his father was a Cooper originally and then became a doctor. So what you're what you have is that you have an African American individual with to the best at that time period and I don't know if I would go as far to say upper middle class, but definitely a professional class of African-Americans for that time period. Um, he then, of course, moved to Steubenville and attended, attended school there as well, which, you know, although perhaps not as progressive as Mount Pleasant, Steubenville is still also a stop on the, on the Underground Railroad and is considered for, compared to many other communities, certainly in the West Virginia, Ohio area, a very progressive area. So um, I would definitely say that 
you know, definitely an African-American friendly community. I mean, when he eventually did encounter racism as a professional, as a young adult, you can only imagine the sort of impact it had on him mentally. Yeah. And, and then he goes from there. He gets into college at Oberlin, um, which is, you know, now known to be a very progressive school. Uh, and still kind of, it's one of the, is it the first school to be co-ed, basically, right? I believe so, yes. Um, Oberlin is, and it's interesting how he gets there. Um, he actually gets there um, sort of a junior college route. His father moves to Oberlin and becomes a minister in that community. So once again, um, he's with folks that are, that are friendly, that look beyond race there as, as well. Um, he plays baseball. He's a great ball player. He's a, he's a catcher. Um, you know, in a place like Oberlin, he's not even their first African-American baseball player on the team, which, you know, many other colleges, I'm sure he would have been. Um, but just tell us about how does he go from this progressive, you know, Amherst, Ohio, um, and finds himself suddenly, now he's a baseball player at the University of Michigan within just a matter of, you know, a few months and years. Well, it's really quite interesting. And um, I, I always like to throw in that he plays baseball at Oberlin with his brother, Weldy. Because what happens is that, you know, eventually Moses becomes a member of the, the, the Toledo Blue Stockings. He becomes the first African-American. And the second African-American is Weldy. So it's kind of interesting how Weldy kind of follows his brother through life. It's kind of an interesting tag. But what happens is that... His younger brother. Yes, Weldy. yes. Weldy is a couple years younger. Um, but Oberlin has a game against the University of Michigan. And I know we're in Columbus, so we're really not supposed to say that all that loud. But even though Oberlin loses the game, the Michigan players are so impressed with Moses that they encourage him to come to Michigan and study law. And he plays baseball for the Wolverines. Well, absolutely. And, uh, you know, some things in history we just can't change. And it's our hope that the Ohio State legislature doesn't hold that against us too much. <laughs> That's a stumbling block we're, for you guys. We're always nervous about that. You know, anytime you bring Michigan in, in, into the Columbus area, it is a little bit concerning. And as Fleet moves into the professional base baseball ranks, you got to understand the old-timey baseball rules of the 1880s. These were played without gloves. He was a catcher, Fleet Walker, catching pitches, you know, 70, 80 miles an hour sometimes without a glove. Pitchers that are crossing him up because they refuse to take signs and orders and directions from an African-American. So a lot of times, Fleet doesn't even know what pitch is coming. He just has to block it, catch it. He suffers... All catchers do back in the day, a number of injuries. We talked to Craig Brown about Fleet Walker, the baseball player, and what it was like to be the first African-American professional player in his struggles with racism and segregation as in his role as a major league baseball player. You know, that's really interesting. I mean, you know, and, and you need to think about catchers from, the, from that time period. No mask. No chest pads, no catcher's mitt. I mean, catcher's mitts are huge, but back then he had maybe like a sort of makeshift glove he on. He did. It was just like, like almost like a batting glove. Yeah, I mean, so it's kind of like, you know, a skateboarder glove or something. Or, yeah. or like if you think about those 80s punk bands with like all the fingers cut out. Right. Kind of something like that where there's a little bit of padding, but, you know, it's going to hurt it's pretty bad. It's crazy. Yeah, it's definitely going to hurt. So, But um, as a catcher, he was fantastic. And, you know, you're, you're, you're talking about an era where – you know, if a catcher commits a couple of errors during a game, that's a pretty good game. Yeah. Okay. And certainly he committed his share of errors, and he, but he was an above-average catcher. 
And I say he was a slightly above average hitter as as well because if you because if you look at his numbers and of course you know you can't compare his numbers to you saw somebody like Aaron Judge or Mike Trout or somebody today you know I mean you know for somebody to bat like 300 would be insane back then mm-hmm. so but if you look at the time period and if you look at other catchers he was definitely up above average and if you look at the numbers he's definitely a guy that based on his the time that he spent in the league he should have been there for a very long time he leaves Michigan before graduating. And he goes to the American Association, not quite the American Association team, I, I step back from that. He goes and he plays for the Toledo Blue Stockings, yeah. which is what we would consider a high minor league team, something like we would refer to as a AAA team today. Right, kind of like the Mud Hens. You, right, exactly. I mean, it, it's the same minor league equivalent. Um, and he plays for them for a year. The Mud Hens, I'm sorry. The, nice, gotcha. Uh, wow. The Blue Stockings. The... Uh, I'm only saying that that way you can hashtag mud hens and get more people to pay attention on Twitter. Um, but he, <laughs> I call them the Toledo Blue Sox. You know what? A lot of people did. I mean, the Blue Stockings, Blue Sox. Uh, actually, uh, there was actually a a uh, Toledo mud hens historian that when I said Blue Stockings, he was very quick to say Blue Sox. He's like, really? it's the Blue Sox. And uh, you know, it's a way better name. I feel like Blue Sox, but it's definitely shorter yeah um but anyway so he he goes on and he plays this this year for the for the the toledo blue Sox. i think we're this is probably about 1883 yeah it's it's actually 1883 and they actually win the um the league championship that year now um the next year they joined the american association which is the modern equivalent of the american league it, it kind of falls into that that broad category and that's where he actually debuts as a professional baseball player. It's, it's what becomes the American League yeah, down yeah. the road. Probably the best baseball player back in those days was a slugger by the name of Cap Anson, who played for the Chicago White Stockings. And Cap was a just open racist when it came to African Americans. And he would run across Fleet Walker a number of times. They become basically arch enemies. Cap Anson doesn't want African Americans playing baseball. He sees Fleet Walker as a threat to that established rule. And he does everything he can to get Fleet Walker out of baseball. Cap Anson is, uh, uh, you know, if Moses Fleet Walker is Luke Skywalker, (laughs) Darth Vader is no parental lineage, but definitely the dark side of human nature. Um, as, as, As you pointed out, they did meet in 1883 in an exhibition game. And Cap Anson basically threw a complete hissy fit. Um, putting it mildly, he did not want to be on the same field as an African American. He felt he didn't have to. He felt like he was too good for it. He felt like no man should play with a with another with a black man. Um, but basically, what happened was that the management of 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 Toledo said, "Cap, if you don't play, you don't get paid." And Cap decided, "Well, if that's the case, <laughs> maybe we'll play." And so he did actually play. In, in that game, but it's interesting because Moses Fleetwood Walker was never scheduled to play in that game because he was hurt. But what's interesting is is that not only did they stand up to cap the the Toledo management, but they also put Walker in as an outfielder for part of the game, kind of as an fu to to Cap Anson, which is kind of interesting because he wasn't scheduled to play anyway. Right. So it's kind of kind of kind of a moot point. In 1884, he does run into Cap in a similar situation again. Uh, this time the Toledo team agrees and keeps Moses Fleetwood Walker out. Um, you know, business is business. It's, it's, it's really a shame, but they did. Um, but what happens is that, and the significant thing is, and it isn't, it isn't just about one player throwing a fit. Um, 
it's about how Cap takes this experience and then moves forward on a vendetta against Moses Fleetwood Walker. Right. And not just against Moses Fleetwood Walker, but against African Americans in general. He basically makes it his goal to make sure that African Americans don't play professional baseball again with white people. And that's what that's exactly what he does. You know, one league falls and says, okay, we agree not to do it. Another one does it and says, okay, we agree not to do it. And that's that's kind of what happens. And what happens with Moses Fleetwood Walker is that the American Association makes makes this agreement. Moses is left. He, he leaves the team. He goes on to another league later. And then that league makes a similar agreement saying, okay, for, well, we're not going to sign any more African Americans. At the end of the year, right. So, and it's, it's kind of like a domino's effect. So basically, you know, this shadow of Cap Anson just follows him through until his baseball career is literally over, you know, not necessarily because of his play, but because he's black. At the end of that tumultuous 1884 season, the Toledo Blue Sox basically become part of as the American Association. There's an agreement to no longer sign contracts to African-American players after the 1884 season. Fleet Walker is unofficially banned from professional baseball, and his brother Weldy as well. No other African-American would play Major League Baseball for another 63 years when Jackie Robinson breaks the color barrier in 1947, a story we'll get to next. Fleet's out of baseball years later and finds himself relying on alcohol. He lives in Syracuse, New York. And on one fateful night, getting into a fight with two Irish cousins, a street fight in, in Syracuse, Fleet Walker finds himself back in the news yet again, this time being charged with second-degree murder. One throws a rock at Moses. It hits him in the head. Moses retaliates. Um, if you study his life, he's not one. He doesn't really back down very easily. Yeah. Um, he tends to not shy away from conflict. Um, basically, what happens is that a brawl ensues. A pocket knife is pulled, and he stabs a guy in the groin. Right. Um, the man dies, and he is charged with murder. It's a, I think it's an Irishman and his cousin who are yeah. fighting. Yeah. <laughs> No stereotypes. No, please, no, stereo- no stereotypes. No stereotypes here. <laughs> so he actually is acquitted, though, correct? He's acquitted uh, unanimously, which is, which is pretty remarkable considering that, that you know this is in the late eighteen eighties, early eighteen nineties. It's an all-white jury. Um, he's basically admitting to stabbing him. It's a self-defense claim, and yeah. he's he's acquitted. And like, there's cheers in the courtroom when he's acquitted. I mean, I mean, the judge breaks his gavel. Yeah. That, I mean, I, I don't, every source I've read has said that. But, I mean, you know, it, it just gives to the romance of the, of the whole picture, the judge breaks his gavel. I mean, that's what you see on TV on a Lifetime movie, the yeah, judge yeah. breaks his gavel. Right. Some sort of cheesy movie. But what's interesting about this is that, you know, you have Moses Fleetwood Walker. He, he knows the law a little bit. He carries himself well. He's... He carries himself as an intellectual. He's very, very well spoken. He's very, he's very handsome. He's tall. He's, he's a dark, tall, dark, handsome man. The, the whole stereotype, and um, he, he, he is in trial with his wife next to him, beautiful young woman. He's got his daughter there on his lap. That's right. You know, 
you know, he looks virtuous, you know, he do, he doesn't look like as people would say a thug of some sort or, you know, all those negative you know, things that we see out in the media today. He looks, he looks very smooth, very, very professional. He looks good. And you need to also remember, and something that a lot of people don't understand about Moses Fleetwood Walker is that we're talking about one of the first celebrity athletes. And we're talking about the, probably the first celebrity African-American athlete. Right. So people know him. He's popular in Syracuse. He helped bring them a championship in Syracuse. This is somebody that these people like. And, and he goes on the stand and tells his version of the story as well. And he does it effectively. And like 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 we said, he he was acquitted, and everybody go, and, and the crowd goes crazy. Like we said before, Fleet Walker is the last player, openly African American player. There was a man years before who was black. He would, but he claimed to be white. His last name was White. Um, Fleet was the last player in his brother Weldy to be openly African-American playing professional baseball until 1947, from 1884 to 1947. This historic figure here in Ohio goes largely unknown, and our guest Craig Brown's mission is to let people know the story of Moses Fleetwood Walker, a story that Ohioans mostly do not know. Even Ohioans from Steubenville and up near uh, Columbiana County where, where Craig resides. Craig's mission is to get Moses Fleetwood Walker Day recognized by the Ohio government and make October 7th, Fleet's birthday, a state holiday. And what we did was that I discussed it with my students. We decided that there should be some sort of uh, memorial or some sort of honor to pay tribute to this guy. So we wanted to get public discussion about him and we felt that the, a good way to do this was by asking the Ohio State Legislature to create a day of honor for Moses Fleetwood Walker and we got a hold of our local state representative at the time Stephen Slesnick who came into class the students presented a PowerPoint presentation on who Moses Fleetwood Walker was of course Stephen re really didn't know either we, we passed the Ohio House overwhelmingly um, we are out of the Ohio Senate Committee we are now in the Ohio Senate Rules Committee. So right now, basically, we're waiting for the Senate leader to give a thumbs up to, to bring it to a floor vote. Yeah, I mean, how can our listeners, is there anything our listeners can do to help with, with, the, with the cause? Email, Facebook, phone calls, um, smoke signals, whatever it takes to get Larry Obhoff and John Kasich to pay attention, because really, it's entirely up to them. Um, it's, it's really their say. Um, we've had a lot of success with this project because we've created a lot of discussion discussion that wouldn't exist. Um, we actually had, Toledo actually declared Moses Fleetwood, Fleetwood Walker Day a couple of years ago. Uh, we, we just sent them a note and I got, I got a certificate in the mail saying, hey, this is what this day means in Toledo. And I was flabbergasted. It's justice for Moses, basically. I mean, this is a guy that historians said, we don't like this guy. Baseball said we don't like this guy because he's black. Um, if you can get in touch with a state legislature, state senator, it doesn't matter if you're from this area or not. As long as they know there's some sort of support out there, which it does exist, um, then they're going to be more willing to act on it. Yeah. Um, every vote we've had, um, the most lopsided vote we had was 93 to 1. Every other committee was unanimous. Uh, when it passed out of the Ohio House last session, every every representative voted for it. That's awesome. So well, this you've is got our, you've got our support, so we'll definitely... We'll definitely it's a big endorsement. Us. I know, the Ohio, <laughs> the Ohio be the world endorsement. After Fleet Walker, no one else played professional baseball until Jackie Robinson. Like we said, 63 years later when he took the field on April 15th, 1947, as a member of the Brooklyn Dodgers. Fleet Walker's not nearly as remembered as Jackie, but we'll tell the story next 
of Branch Rickey, the owner and general manager of those Brooklyn Dodgers from Delaware, Ohio, the man responsible for signing and integrating our national pastime. Next, we bring you the story of Branch Rickey. Our second story is also the second time we will be talking about an Ohioan who has been portrayed by Harrison Ford in a movie. Harrison Ford, one of my favorite actors, Han Solo, Indiana Jones. But he also played Branch Rickey, much like he played Sam Shepard. It was actually Dr. Richard Kimball based on Sam Shepard, the subject of Ohio versus Murder, our seventh episode. But in 2013, he plays Branch Rickey in the movie 42, the story of Jackie Robinson and the integration of professional baseball. At least a couple times a month, I drive from Columbus to Delaware, Delaware, Ohio, the county seat of Delaware County, about 30 miles north of Columbus, the fastest growing county in the state, also the wealthiest per capita. But that road, US 23, that leads out of Franklin County to the city of Delaware north is called the Branch Rickey Memorial Highway. Today, our guest, Roger Engels, formerly the athletic director at Ohio Wesleyan University in Delaware, now the athletic director at Capitol here in Columbus. Roger was a part of that effort, testifying in front of the Ohio legislature to get Branch Rickey Memorial Highway made. Branch Rickey, the country bumpkin from southern Ohio who goes to Ohio Wesleyan, plays baseball, later coaches the team, has the same job as our guest Roger Engels when he is the athletic director at Ohio Wesleyan. The basketball arena, I was just there recently as a judge for Ohio History Day, is Branch Rickey Arena. Branch Rickey is responsible for breaking the color barrier, for signing Jackie Robinson to the Brooklyn Dodgers in 1945, and on April 15, 1947, a day now celebrated across all 30 Major League Baseball parks as Jackie Robinson Day. His number, 42, is retired. You'll see it on every stadium. 42 is retired. That day, every player wears a number 42 jersey as we honor the amazing Jackie Robinson who integrated the national pastime and ultimately began and jump-started the civil rights movement. The man who brought Jackie Robinson into baseball is one of Delaware, Ohio's most famous members. I'd say besides Rutherford B. Hayes, he is the most famous person from Delaware, Ohio, as far as I'm concerned. We sit down with Roger Engels, and we talk about the incredible poverty that Branch Rickey grows up in in southern Ohio, and when he takes a train from Lucasville, Ohio, to Delaware to go to Ohio Wesleyan University. Yeah, he was from a, a very rural area down in southern Ohio, uh, Duck Run, I think uh, is where he kind of grew up. Stockton, Ohio is where he was born. And uh, not a great educational system. When he came to Ohio Wesleyan, he was very poorly uh, prepared uh, for the academic uh, rigors that the university was going to offer. And he uh, got off that train uh, in Delaware, Ohio. Uh, and you, th you picture this, you know, 18, 19-year-old young man getting off a train. He's got a suitcase with all his worldly belongings in it and everything he owned. I think he had one uh, suit jacket that he brought with him. And uh, he's going into a world where he wasn't quite prepared academically, but he had tremendous drive, which later played out in his life that uh, his work ethic and his hard work uh, paid off. Uh, got into Ohio Wesleyan, really started struggling right away. 
academically. He had some professors who kind of took him under their wing and uh, worked with him. Uh, did a lot of extra work outside the classroom. Uh, he did a number of outside jobs to kind of help pay his way through school. Uh, coming from a poor background, obviously, he had to work his way through school and would often get up in the morning and go uh, start the fires and the fireplaces and everything in the classroom so they'd be warm when the other students got there. And uh, just was a, uh, uh, a really a great story uh, when you think about where he came from and then what he turned himself into. Ricky begins playing professional baseball, meaning he can no longer have his amateur status at Ohio Wesleyan. He also becomes the Ohio Wesleyan baseball coach around the same time. Ricky was a great player, a catcher. Not a great hitter, but a heck of a defensive player. Um, and he would play many years in the majors. But at this time, in his early 20s, he's the manager of the Ohio Wesleyan team. You see a lot of catchers that end up being managers, catchers like Ricky. You look at Reynoldsburg, Ohio's own Mike Matheny, the manager of the St. Louis Cardinals, my favorite team, or Brad Osmus, who was a one-time Columbus Clipper catcher, um, and now the manager of the Detroit Tigers. Catchers always seem to find their way into managerial roles. When Ricky was the manager, he had a player, another catcher, named Charles Thomas, an African-American who played for Ohio Wesleyan, one of the team's strongest players. And on a trip in Indiana to play against Notre Dame, back in the day, these small colleges, Oberlin, Ohio Wesleyan, Worcester, Denison, they would play games against Ohio State and Michigan and Notre Dame and be competitive. All colleges were much smaller back then. But they make a trip to South Bend, Indiana. When we tell the story, Branch Rickey, Roger tells us about his story with Charles Thomas and the incident before the Notre Dame baseball game. Well, Branch gets to the hotel, and the clerk tells him that uh, they don't allow uh, African Americans and whites to share share the same hotel. That Charles couldn't stay there, so Branch immediately gets into a very long discussion with the clerk, uh, and is able to convince him to allow uh, Charles to have a cot in his room. So they go up to the room and. Branch tell, often told his story of Charles sitting in his room and just rubbing his hands together and, you know, saying, I, I, wish I, I wish I could just rub the skin off, Mr. Ricky. I just wish I could rub the skin off. And uh, Branch, later on in life, said that he looked back at that moment, and that was a moment that he realized he, if he could at any time, was going to do something to solve this issue that we had in America uh, between uh, blacks and whites and do whatever he could to, uh, to help end uh, racism and help end uh, segregation. And Charles was able to stay and they were able to play the game. And, you know, it was one of many times throughout his time frame with Ohio Westland, either as a coach or later on as a board member and former fraternity member where Branch stood up for what was right. Ricky's no longer playing professional baseball, but he moves into a managerial role, kind of a director of player operations as well, with the St. Louis Cardinals, a team that was kind of the laughing stock of St. Louis. There's another team there, the St. Louis Browns, a much better franchise. The Cardinals, who began their now storied history in 1892, back in the day, before Branch Ricky turned that franchise around, the Cardinals were terrible. They've now won the second most world championships in, in Major League Baseball with 11 only behind the New York Yankees. Ricky turns the Cardinals around through his many innovations. We ask Roger about how Branch Ricky changes the game of baseball 
Now he turns the Cardinals around to win multiple championships in the 20s, 30s, and 40s. Well, the best thing that happened to uh, Branch Rickey in his life was early in his career uh, with the Cardinals, the owner fired him as a manager. And Yeah, 1925 the, he fired him, yeah. Yes, and he moved him up into the front office and, and left him there. And he told him at the time, he says, someday you're going to thank me because he goes, you're not the manager and uh, or the manager type, uh, but you're a great front office type. So one of the first things he did was the creation of the farm system, which today we all see is, you know, you have uh, all these teams that have minor league teams, but that wasn't uh, available back then. So Branch started signing up talent like crazy, and the, and the Cardinals started accumulating all these young players that they had in their minor league, their own minor league teams that other teams didn't, and they had this wealth of uh, talent. He also started coming up with, you know, he was a very ingenious guy, and he, he kind of thought outside the box, but Branch was the guy who came up with uh, the, the batting helmet. He was the guy who came up with the pitching machine. A lot of people, I don't think, realize that he was a, a co-founder of the uh, – uh, All-American Girls Baseball League, you know, the, a league of your own with Madonna and, and uh, Gina them. Davis. Yeah. Yes, and he was a co-founder of that. So The, Ro- the Rockford Peaches, I think, yes. is his team. But he, he thought outside the box, and with the Cardinals, he was just uh, five steps ahead of everybody. And pretty soon the other teams started trying to catch up. You know, the interesting thing about the Cardinals, uh, the Cardinal uh, uh, birds on the bat logo that, that Ricky came up with, is he got that out of a Presbyterian church. That's right. And he had attended the church and saw this cardboard cut out, and, and the person who had done that, he had help them help him design a logo where he had the birds on the bat, which we all know the Cardinals. So obviously that's one of my favorite uniforms. After the war, Ricky leaves St. Louis to become a part owner and the general manager of the Brooklyn Dodgers. Again, he begins to turn that team around. They're very talented. He decides early on in his Brooklyn tenure that he is going to add an African-American baseball player. He begins the process in the mid-1940s of scouting the Negro Leagues for that player. We asked Roger, why Brooklyn? Why did it work in Brooklyn? And why is he decide on Jackie Robinson? Out of all the great players in the Negro Leagues, it's Jackie Robinson that Branch Rickey decides is the best person to break baseball's color barrier. Well, kind of still from the real estate term, it's all about location, location, location. Uh, St. Louis was not going to be a community that was going to welcome an African-American player into their community on their team. Uh, it just that's just not who St. Louis was at the time. Uh, you know, it's a southern team, uh, very deep-rooted into segregation and, and a lot of the uh, Jim Crow laws and that that were on the books at that time. When he got to Brooklyn, it's a different community. It's a melting pot. It's, uh, you know, you've got so much diversity and, and inclusion that was happening in, in uh, Brooklyn that was, was not happening anywhere else. And this was the one community where bringing in a Jackie Robinson was going to work, at least for the home games. And, uh, you know, it was going to be a great fit. And that's what happened is it's, it was the right place at the right time for Ricky. And the other places, when he was in St. Louis, it was not going to work. Why does he choose Jackie Robinson in particular? I mean, what is it about Robinson that Ricky thought he would be the perfect person to to make the first African-American player? I mean, there's not that he wasn't a great player, but, you know, there's players like Buck Allen, 
his other Kansas City Monarch teammate, Satchel Paige. Monty Irvin, um, another great, probably the best player at the time, I think, in the Negro Leagues. What is it about Jackie that, that Branch Rickey sees that makes him the perfect candidate? You know, there's a lot of different characteristics that you can say about Jackie that, that would make him the right fit. I'm going to give you one that probably most people don't point out, but was the ideal reason why uh, Jackie was the right person for uh, Branch to choose, and that's a person by the name of Rachel Robinson, his wife. Uh, she and Jackie had an unbelievable relationship. Uh, Rachel is a huge Jackie supporter even to this day, but she was the calm in his world. When everything else was storming around, she was the person that really kept him cool and kept him down. Branch was looking for a guy that had unbelievable talent because he had to be successful. He could, It didn't do any good in the world to bring somebody in who was going to turn the other cheek and do everything if they couldn't play the game. So it had to be a very talented person where you got an All-American football player, you know, a great baseball player that was going to come in, to the, uh, come in and play for him. It was a perfect fit. Had to be somebody who was poised and could handle the taunts and the and the, the cries that he was going to hear from the crowd and 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 even from from his own teammates uh, at times. Uh, and Jackie had that. It had to be a person who had great intelligence. I mean, he's a college student, and at that time there weren't a lot of baseball players playing in the major leagues who were college educated. He went to USC, right? Yeah, uh, UCLA. UCLA. Yes, and uh, so he had all those different characteristics. Uh, you know, the character, the poise, the talent. And then the last thing that Ricky was looking for is he was looking for that guy who was going to be willing to turn the other cheek and not fight back when it, everything in the world called for him to fight back. And to do that whole process, and I know we'll get to this a little bit later, but the partnership and the, the working uh, relationship that Branch and Jackie had was tremendous. And I think a lot is overlooked about that partnership that those two developed and the relationship. But, again, the key component in that was Rachel Robinson. And I find it interesting today that Branch's grandson, Branch III, and Sharon Robinson, Jackie's daughter, are two two very, very close friends and have that same kind of relationship that Branch and Jackie had. In 1945, Ricky calls a meeting with Jackie Robinson. It's a scene portrayed in the movie 42. You should check it out. But he peppers, he peppers Jackie with racial slurs. And when Jackie says, do you want a player, Mr. Ricky, someone who's afraid to fight back? And he said, no, I want someone who has the guts not to fight back. It's said that he asked him for three years to turn the other cheek to racial slurs and all the taunts he would hear on the road. Robinson agrees this is somebody who's a decorated war a war hero lieutenant during world war ii a star running back at ucla a great baseball player jackie robinson signs a deal and it's announced that he will play in 1946 for the for the brooklyn dodgers triple a affiliate in montreal for the montreal royals before moving on in 1947 to play for brooklyn there was no written rule that said that Major League Baseball was going to be uh, uh, was going to ban African Americans from baseball. Uh, it was an unofficial rule. Ricky had a 50, 60 year history that he was fighting here, and the owners were completely against him. Uh, all 50, 15 other teams. It's just the country is a different country. 
the racism, the segregation. I mean, you couldn't, you didn't share the same hotels. You couldn't share the same restaurants. You couldn't drink out of the same uh, water fountains, use the same restrooms. Uh, and even though it doesn't seem like it's that long ago, it was a, a, a whole world ago in terms of, of the relationships in the country. And, you know, you think about it, it's what, 80 some years, now almost 90 years after the Civil War. And we're, st- we're still fighting it in many parts of the country. Yeah. In 1947, on April 15th, Jackie Robinson takes the field for the Brooklyn Dodgers. His effect on baseball and the country is immediate. The stands at Ebbets Field are packed, and Jackie begins hitting, running, playing incredible defense, changing modern Major League Baseball. He goes on to win the 1947 Rookie of the Year. The Dodgers go on to win the 1947 National League pennant before losing in the World Series. But Jackie Robinson is a star. He's an amazing player, and he has integrated baseball, our national pastime. It seems crazy that it was only, gosh, 70 years ago. But professional sports were segregated. It's, it was a, just a different country. We asked Roger about the effect Jackie Robinson had on baseball his style of play, how he brings Negro League style of baseball into the mainstream, and why he was the perfect person to break the color barrier in Major League Baseball. I used to uh, say that Jackie was an AstroTurf player before there was AstroTurf. <laughs> uh, when, when turf came into the game of baseball, uh, because the balls move faster on it, you had to have more speed. And because you had that more speed, you had to have great arms. You had to be able to cut them down. And then the parks became bigger, and you needed more power. Well, Jackie had all those things. Great speed, great arm, great power, uh, great defensive player. But he brought an aggressive style of game that had not existed in Major League Baseball, and that was the aggressive base running. He would drive pitchers crazy and force box. He would take the extra base. Uh, you know, going from home to second or first to third. And that was a very – that's how you played the Negro Leagues, you know. That's it. And it was an exciting game. Uh, bunning, bunning guys for – bunning for a base hit, dropping the ball down, uh, making people uh, defend the entire field. And this was something that was new. And his style then kind of became contagious. And because of the way he played, he opened the door for so, so many other great African-American players who joined the major leagues. Uh, because he demonstrated that they can change a game and they and you can win uh, with these guys. Uh, you know, Larry Doby, who signed with the Cleveland Indians, was the first African American player in the American League. Uh, there in the uh, Don Newcomb signed with the Dodgers right after that, and he just opened a floodgate of of great players who came into the big leagues. And a lot of it was because of the style he brought. It was an exciting style. The fans liked it. It was no more just kind of sitting around waiting to see what happened. He was going to make things happen. Branch Rickey always returned to Delaware, Ohio. Ohio Wesleyan in the town that gave him his start. Rickey is a board, he's on the trustees, board of trustees at Ohio Wesleyan. He comes back after leaving the Pirates in the 1960s to just work. He's just such a hard worker that he just couldn't retire. He doesn't know what that's like. And he goes back to work helping to raise money and awareness for Ohio Wesleyan. We asked Roger who had the same job. He was the baseball coach and the athletic director at Ohio Wesleyan, just like Mr. Ricky. Uh, we asked him just about his times in Delaware and how he's affected that community. 
when you say he came back, I don't know that he ever left there. Uh, <laughs> he was, uh, over the years, uh, one of the great things of working up there was meeting individuals who knew him when he had come back at different times. He's committed to uh, doing things the right way and to ending segregation and ending uh, racism. Uh, and it, he spent his whole life that way. So Ohio Wesleyan was scheduled to go play Rollins uh college down in florida and florida had the jim crow laws which did not allow blacks and whites to compete on the same uh playing field so rollins had sent a message back to ohio westland saying that uh you know we're looking forward to playing you but you cannot bring your tail back ken woodward uh, down with you because he's african-american so the team actually met and voted to go play the game and leave ken at home and uh Branch was on our, our board at the time uh, there at Ohio Westland, and, and what he did was he, he got the group together, and they decided that either the entire team went or nobody went. And since Rollins couldn't or wouldn't change the uh, uh, their stance, Ohio Westland did not go and play that game. Uh, the following year, they later went down and played, and Ken Woodward played in that game. Branch Rickey would live to be 83 years old. Born in 1881 near Portsmouth, Ohio, he dies in, in December of 1965. And actually, a month before, he's giving a speech as he's being elected to the Missouri Sports Hall of Fame for his incredible decades of, of work with the St. Louis Cardinals and how he changed baseball. He's being inducted into the Missouri Sports Hall of Fame. And in a speech in Columbia, Missouri, near the campus of the University of Missouri, Ricky collapses during that speech. He would never speak again. He would never regain consciousness. Dying the next month, December 9th, 1965, just before his 84th birthday. He's buried in Rushtown, Ohio, near his parents and his widow, who died uh, about six or seven years later, and his children, including Branch Ricky Jr. Uh, Ricky's grave kind of overlooks like the Scioto River Valley um, and is just a couple of miles away from his boyhood home in Stockdale, Ohio. We asked Roger just about the impact that Branch Rickey had, not just on baseball, but on America. Jackie Robinson signing to the Brooklyn Dodgers changed America. It yeah. wasn't just Brooklyn, and it wasn't just baseball. He changed America. I mean, you think about the signing in 1947 was before the, the, the Supreme Court ruled on the Board of Education, Brown versus Board of Education. Yeah, 1954. Yeah, it was before the U.S. Army uh, integrated. Uh, he was so far ahead of his time. Story, we're going to go to the 1919 World Series, the most infamous World Series ever played. It's known as the Black Sox scandal, when a group of eight players from the Chicago White Sox took money from gamblers and agreed to throw the World Series. They were playing against the Cincinnati Reds, a number of the, of the eight games that were played in the World Series, of the best of nine back then, were played on the Ohio River. Um, just northeast of downtown in Cincinnati, Ohio. A number of Ohioans involved in those historic games, which gave the Cincinnati Reds, baseball's oldest professional franchise, its first ever world championship 
albeit somewhat tainted with an asterisk due to the Black Sox scandal. Today, we sat down with Rick Hewn, a noted baseball historian. Um, he's written a number of books, including a book by, about Eddie Collins, the second baseman, star second baseman of those Black Sox, who was not involved in the scandal. We talked to Rick about the 1990 World, 1919 World Series, the players who took the money. How did it happen? How did Cincinnati end up winning their first world championship? And how did it all come out? We talk about how it was uncovered. The Black Sox scandal. A black mark, a cloud that would hang over baseball and sports that the sport almost never recovered from. In 1917, gambling was so prevalent uh, in Boston, there was actually a riot where gamblers ran onto the field in efforts to uh, stop a game to their benefit or, or favor so that they wouldn't lose a lot of money. And uh, so there was, there was an effort to stamp out gambling, but it was one of the things that was overriding in the game and maybe had an effect on why the 1919 uh, a World Series became a fair game for some of the players to uh, work with gamblers to throw games. Right. They had heard other players who had not only done it, but had gotten away with it. Correct. Just in fact, uh, with the Cincinnati Reds a, a year or so before, uh, the first baseman, Hal Chase, who was truly one of the great fielding first basemen of, of all time, was also a notorious for uh, throwing baseball games. Allegations had been brought that uh, he was involved and throwing some uh, uh, baseball games while with the Reds. And really, just after hearings were held, a slap on the wrist, nothing really happened. And so the, the players were aware of this. They could, they could see that players were getting away with these types of uh, shenanigans. And so the, the atmosphere was ripe for what happened in 1919. Now, was Chase with the Reds when the, those allegations occurred also? Uh, yes, he was. Um, and later on, he and a, a, a fellow player, Lee McGee, an Ohioan, um, who actually was from Cincinnati and, and lived in Columbus, um, Lee McGee was brought up on charges, uh, um, and actually dismissed and sued baseball. Uh, this occurred in 1920 and was one of the precursors for the eventual charges that were alleged against the Black Sox. The White Sox were a fantastic team in 1919. The league's best, the American League pennant winners. We asked Rick about the forgotten team as well, the 1919 Cincinnati Reds. The storied Cincinnati franchise is their first world championship. We asked Rick about these two teams. How did they match up? As Rick breaks down both of these teams, the Reds and the White Sox involved in that scandalous series of 1919. Going into the World Series, the Chicago White Sox were prohibitive favorites. I don't, uh, I can't say that there weren't a few sports writers or prognosticators who were uh, favoring the Reds, but I'd say they were in the vast minority. Uh, one of the reasons in 1917 the, uh, the White Sox were the world champions of baseball. Uh, 1918, of course, was a war year, and the, and the team was devastated with uh, players having to go into service, uh, working in war industry. So they didn't fare well in 1918, but they returned everybody essentially in 1919. The Reds, on the other hand, were not as well known, 
but on closer inspection, they had a very, very good pitching staff with a lot of depth. And a lot of people had overlooked that going into the series, uh, and it made a big difference in the World Series as things turned out that they, they were able to pitch and go five deep in their pitching and use that to their great advantage during the World Series. So over the years, despite the fact that everybody has said this was a huge, huge upset, and certainly it was an upset, um, but maybe not as big an upset. Star pitcher Eddie Seacott, one of the men on the take, the kind of, he made about $7,500 that year, one of the most highest paid players on the team. But Seacott's smart, and he wants his money from the gamblers up front. He wants $10,000 in cash, and he wants it before the series starts. He's pitching game one down on the Ohio River in Cincinnati. Seacott gets his ten grand. Chick Gandall gets a bunch of money. It's doled out to the players through the gamblers. Players like Joe Jackson find $5,000 under their pillow at their Cincinnati hotel. The fix is on. But after the first couple of games, they're supposed to be getting their money they obviously wanted it up front. There's some problems. All the money's tied up in bets. The gamblers would tell them, uh, we'll get you paid after the game one. Or, sorry, we'll get you paid after game two. The White Sox fall down 2 nothing in the series to the Reds after Seacott and Lefty Williams, both two of the eight players, the only two pitchers who are in on the fix, lose both games. But the money doesn't start coming in. The gamblers are coming up short. And they're giving excuses. We asked Rick about, about those issues of getting paid and how it might have affected the series. Uh, it's kind of like the chicken uh, and the egg, which, you know, which came first, but the... The, the gambler, ran- the ball player. Right, right. right. But um, certainly uh, once uh, the ringleader, who was Chick Gandle, the first baseman of the, of the White Sox, uh, l- let it be known or that he was approachable. I'm sure that that didn't take long for the piranhas to come around, and there were plenty of them out there. Once he was able to uh, bring the star pitcher Eddie Seacott aboard, I think that sort of sealed the deal because then the several of the other players fell into line. And once you get a pitcher of the quality of Eddie Seacott and eventually uh, the other star pitcher for the White Sox, Lefty Williams, on board, you've got a good chance to convince gamblers that you can come through with the goods. Yeah, because you're going to have pitchers that are going to start probably the majority of those games in control of, of the fix. That's correct. And then as, as time went on, uh, other players were added in, including uh, th- really three-fourths of the, of the White Sox infield uh, with Swede Risberg, the shortstop, uh, Gandal, of course, at first base, and Buck Weaver, who uh, sat in on the meetings, but probably was not involved in the in the fix itself. Yeah, and then star outfielder Joe Jackson. Everybody's heard of shoeless Joe ja- Jackson. He was truly one of the stars of the game, one of the best batters in in baseball history. And another outfielder named Happy Felsch, who was a terrific uh, outfielder, center so fielder, you, I think. Right. So you had two of the three outfielders, the two actual regular outfielders, and three-fourths of the infield. You were minus Eddie Collins, the uh, future Hall of Fame second baseman. Who you wrote a book about. That's correct. Right. Uh, Terrific ball player, future Hall of Famer, and also future Hall of Fame catcher Ray Schock. 
The Black Sox had one issue that they had to figure out between the eight of them. And that's how do you throw a baseball game without making it obvious? Because it's not just the fans who are watching. There's so many rumors swirling and the gambling that's coming in on the Reds. There's a lot of people watching to see if something's not right with this game. But also your own teammates. Guys like Eddie Collins and and the players that that Rick already mentioned that weren't in on the take. They're going to notice if you're not playing hard. They're going to notice if you're throwing a fat pitch right over the middle of the plate. So we asked Rick, how do you actually throw the World Series? Well, that's one of the the toughest uh, puzzles. I have, I have a friend that uh, um, is uh, he's now deceased, but he was uh, an expert on the Black Sox. He called it one of baseball's grandest cold cases. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's, it's very difficult to tell a game has been thrown. We, we're pretty sure that they took money because uh, several of them uh, admitted that and testified originally before a grand jury that they had, later recanting that testimony during a trial. But as far as what plays were involved, who did what when, the, uh, one of the stories is that in order to alert the gamblers in game one that the fix was in, uh, was that uh, Eddie Seacott, who was a starting pitcher for the White Sox, would hit the first batter up. And uh, sure enough, the second pitch of the game, uh, Seacott hit uh, second baseman Maury Rath, the, the Reds' leadoff batter, uh, brushed him in the back with a, with a pitch. So if that's true, then that, that that was the signal, then the signal was given. But it's very hard to, to determine specific plays. Uh, one play in particular that is uh, now on, out on film Film was discovered within the last two or three years that have been yeah, buried found, up in, yeah, it found in, in like Alaska. Under, <laughs> underneath like a... Up in the Yukon. Yeah, but it was and, like found underneath some kind of floor. Right, or and uh, there were all these films, and some of them were from the uh, actual 1919 World Series, and there's one in particular that shows a play that occurred in, I believe, the fourth inning, which was one of the innings where Seacott sort of disintegrated, where the ball is hit back to Eddie Seacott, he, he turns around, he throws the ball to uh, Swede Risberg, the shortstop, cutting across second base to throw to first. They got the man on a force out at second, but the man at first was safe. And the question, it was a questionable play. A lot of people thought that Eddie Seacott had hesitated before he threw the ball to second base, which is a way you could throw a game and that Risberg kind of stumbled going across the bag. To assure they wouldn't get what was a tailor-made double play. Right. We had a group of, uh, of what we call Black Sox experts, which are just a group like me who have an interest in the, in the Black Sox scandal, uh, got together in uh, Chicago to view the film oh, at, wow, that's at, awesome. at a baseball meeting. And there were about 20 to 30 of us sitting there, and none of us could come to an agreement on just what happened looking at the, at the play in slow motion over and over and over again. He could have hesitated. Risberg could have stumbled. It could have been on purpose. Maybe, maybe not. So there is a key play that has been branded as one of the, the plays that uh, changed the, the uh, outcome of the 1919 World Series that we'll never really know about, even though we have photos, photographic film 
evidence. And you couldn't tell. And you can't tell. Uh, same thing in game four that you alluded to. Eddie Seacott disintegrated in, I think it was the fourth inning, gave up several runs. He committed two errors in that uh, fourth game. Uh, highly unusual for him. He was a decent fielding uh, pitcher. Uh, for him to have committed two errors, but it turned the whole game around and gave and the Reds won, won that fourth game. The um, they won the first game, they won the second yeah. game. In the second game, even though most people think the, uh, perhaps the f first, second, and eighth, a lot of people think the first, fourth, and eighth. But in the second game, Lefty Williams, who's one of the great control pitchers in baseball, uh, had six walks. And he was one of the He had maybe 40-some walks the entire uh, season in 1919. He had a great 200 year. 200-and-some innings. He had a great year. Right. And, and yet he completely disintegrates in, in that game. And, of course, in Game 8, which you may want to get to later, I don't want to jump ahead, but in Game 8 he totally blew up. So After another two losses by Eddie Seacott and Lefty Williams, the pitchers, the White Sox find themselves and the country finds them in a stunning 4-1 hole in a best-of-nine World Series. The Cincinnati Reds are one win away from their first World Championship. But at this time, it's pretty clear that the gamblers have double-crossed the baseball players. They're not going to receive the amounts of money that they had requested. Some, some cases, they receive less than half of what they were supposed to get. And at this point, the Black Sox, as, known, as they're known, the eight players... Shoeless Joe Jackson, Happy Felch, these players, even Chick Gandle, the ringleader, who probably made the most money, some, somewhere I believe between thirty and $40,000, they decide to turn it on. And they decide if we're not going to get paid, then we're going to win this damn series. And down four to one, they start playing baseball again. We ask Rick about how the Black Sox turn it on and get the series competitive again. If they turned it on, turned it off, and even if they did, that could they really control it to that extent that sure. they could just start up? As I said, I think the Reds were a better team than anybody gave them credit for. They had a they had a Hall of Fame outfielder by the name of Ed Roush. Uh, they had five good starting pitchers, and they had enough hitting to go with that that they might have been able to win it even if the the White Sox were playing all out the entire. Eight games. Yeah, I mean, Eddie Roush, we'll talk about him a little bit later, but what kind of player was Ed Roush? Well, he was certainly a very good outfielder, but terrific hitter. Um, he played all out. He played hard. Good, good, uh, good outfielder. It took him a while to get into the Hall of Fame. Maybe they waited a little bit too long, but he is the one player that, you know, from the team that uh, was a good, solid uh, Hall of Fame uh, baseball player. The Reds win the 1919 World Series, five games to three. They're celebrated in downtown Cincinnati as their first world championship. We go into the 1920 season. There are still rumors and about, about the scandal that something was not right about the World Series, that the White Sox had possibly thrown it in favor of the gamblers all of whom seem to be betting large amounts of money on the Cincinnati Reds. But they go into the 1920 season, and the White Sox are actually still in the pennant chase. 
No action is taken by Major League Baseball. The owner, Charles Comiskey, has his, uh, has his you know, investigators out. He thinks something happened, but he also is kind of trying to hide that. It's bad for business, for, for the public to know that his players threw in the towel, that they cheated America in favor of money. It'd be bad for business. It'd be bad for baseball, and it certainly would be bad for Charles Comiskey. But we talked to Rick Hewn about how did this all come to light because as the 1920 season winds down and heads towards the postseason, all of this blows up. The White Sox, all eight players are banned from baseball, at least suspended indefinitely by Charles Comiskey. And it all comes to light as the 1920 season unravels for the Chicago White Sox and how the story of the fixing of the 1919 World Series comes to light in Chicago before a grand jury. There was no way that you know, Gandal would, would play for him in, in that year. But the other players were re-signed uh, and came back in 1920, and they had a very good year going. They were in the thick of things with the, uh, with the Cleveland Indians and I believe the Yankees, the three of them uh, coming down to the wire. But um, there had been allegations of uh, a bribe in a Phillies-Cubs game. And uh, the owner of the, uh, of the Cubs was not, uh, was not happy about this. And uh, the Wrigley, I believe it was Wrigley at that point, um, anyway, uh, was very unhappy. And uh, so they convened a grand jury and started looking into in this Chicago. in Chicago. They decided they, they wanted to take another look at the uh, Black Sox scandal. And so they, the grand jury started uh, subpoenaing players. And, they, and some of them came in, and Eddie Seacott and Joe Jackson confessed, uh, gave a signed confession. Then um, the, uh, the next day, Lefty Williams came in. And then Happy Felsch gave a story to a newspaper, and it all broke at, at that point. In 1921, all of this goes before a trial. All eight players are tried on conspiracy charges. There's testimony, witnesses, attorneys. It's a huge story in the, in the country. We asked Rick Yoon about that trial, how the players were found ultimately not guilty, yet banned for life from baseball. Banned by the new baseball commissioner, an Ohioan charged with cleaning up the game, a federal judge, Kennesaw Mountain Landis. We asked Rick about the trial and the fallout from the fixing of the 1919 World Series. It, it may be for some of the same reasons what we're dealing with with um, even football players today where, where they're not prosecuting them uh, for a crime, but they are still um, being disciplined by, yeah, Zeke by Elliott, football. You know, yeah. uh, Ezekiel Elliott is a, is a current prime example. The, uh, the idea uh, and the fact that they actually had confessed, it's pretty, it's pretty hard to, to throw that away. The idea that they, they were involved and that gambling was a huge issue in baseball and that they had uh, gone out and gotten a new commissioner, the new, new sheriff in town, so to speak, uh, uh, Kennesaw Mountain Landis, who Another was a Ohio. former federal judge from Ohio originally, uh, that um, he was a tough judge. And he determined, no matter whether they are found uh, guilty or innocent, that these players will not come back if, they, if a player knew uh, even 
that there was going to be gambling and didn't report it or bet on a game such as, you know, even if it was uh, betting on their own team, that it was a violation. And he made that rule, and it really did change the arc of the, of the, uh, the, the, the game in the future as far as gambling. I mean, gambling was a much lesser problem from that day forward. Um, the players were found not guilty, but in all reality, I think there's a lot of us that, that believe what happened does happen sometimes when you have uh, stars involved in uh, legal proceedings, and that is the jury was enamored with the players. The White Sox were a, um, had a huge fandom in Chicago. Uh, they had a terrific uh, defense team, kind of an early dream team. Paid so for by Comiskey. Paid for by Comiskey. Um, the, the, the many on the jury were probably uh, fans, even if they didn't want to tell the uh, prosecutor that in, in jury selection, but that they just overlooked the evidence and that they, they went with... Uh, with their hearts and not, not their minds on this and, and said not guilty. The Cincinnati Reds, the winners of that notorious 1919 World Series, they have a great exhibit um, down at the Reds Hall of Fame. If you go down to Great American Ballpark, downtown Cincinnati on the riverfront, they have an amazing museum down there. I suggest you go check it out. Learn about those 1919 Reds. Um, they used to even have a walking tour around town that would talk about the World Series and where certain meetings and events took place and the games and all that crazy stuff. Uh, but check out the Cincinnati Reds Hall of Fame. It's a very cool museum right next to the stadium. And next time you go to a game down there, just go an hour early and go in there and check it out. Which will bring us to our last story, which is the story of the 1908 Chicago Cubs an Ohioan Fred Merkel, and how Merkel's boner, as the play would be called, led to the Chicago Cubs' last World Series for over 108 years. Let me take you back a hundred years or so to a baseball tale full of woe. So sad we still remember it. Last October was an incredible World Series. The Cleveland Indians, who have not won a championship since 1948. The only longer streak in baseball belongs, of course, belonged to the Chicago Cubs, who had not won since 1908. It's before Wrigley Field even existed. 1908, 108 years before the 2016 Fall Classic. The Indians go up 3-1. And they have a home game for Game 7. The series is tied. They have their star pitcher, Kluber, on the mound. Um, they fall down 5-1. to one. My brother's there. He said he didn't even enjoy the game. He was just so nervous the whole time. The Indians fall down 5-1. to one. Our guest today, Sam Pathy, a Chicago Cubs historian, he can't watch the game. He becomes too nervous as it gives him the 6th and 7th inning. The Indians get 5-3. In the 8th, Rajay Davis hits a two-run homer off Araldus Chapman the fireball closer, and suddenly it's tied 5-5. There's a rain delay after the ninth inning, and in extra innings, the Cubs win Game 7, complete the comeback, and end the curse of 108 years on the shores of Lake Erie at Progressive Field, otherwise known as the Jake. Those poor Indians, those hard-luck Cleveland fans, I'm one of them. Um, That was a tough night for a lot of my friends. Even though I'm a Cardinals fan, I hate the Cubs and was rooting so hard for the Indians. So, 
It made us think about the last time they won and Ohio's role in the 1908 Chicago Cubs championship, 108 years before their most recent title. And it was the play of Fred Merkel, a man who grew up in Toledo, Ohio, a young first baseman, a 19-year-old first baseman for the New York Giants, whose boneheaded play, it's called Merkel's Boner, and he went by the name Bonehead, um, much to his dismay for the rest of his very storied baseball career. Much like Bill Buckner, the ball that went through his legs, it is Merkel and the curse of Merkel that some Cubs fans see as the very first curse that made it 108 years before they could win a title. Not the Billy Goat. We talked with Sam Pathy about all these Billy Goats. Steve Bartman, the fan who reached over the rail in 2003. Um, the Black Cat that ran in front of Ron Santo in the, in the, in the on-deck circle. All those curses all relate back to the curse of Merkel and the controversial play by, by Fred Merkel of Toledo, Ohio, that gave the Cubs an opportunity to win their last championship in 1908. We talked to Sam Pathy, Chicago Cubs historian, author of So You Think You're a Cubs Fan, and also the author of a very cool book called Wrigley Field Year by Year. Uh, you can look and get both those on Amazon. We asked Sam, first of all, who was Fred Merkel, the bonehead known for Merkel's boner? Well, in 1908, Fred Merkel was 19 years old. He was the youngest player in the National League. He had a cup of coffee with the New York Giants in, in the year before, 1907. In 1908, in, he, he came to bat like 45 times during the season, so he didn't play very much. Um, on that date, September 23rd, the, 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 the starting first baseman uh, had a backache. So they put Merkel in the game. He grew up in the Toledo area. Yes. Uh, played a little bit of minor league ball in, in Ohio and Michigan and uh, hooked on with the Giants in 07. Merkel finds himself in a very important game. The Giants, the Cubs, and the Pirates have been battling all summer. And the Giants, with a win over the Cubs at home, could basically establish control over the National League, win the pennant, and go to the World Series. We talk about that game what was on the line um, between the Giants and the Cubs, who were huge rivals in the early part of the 20th century? Yeah, the 1908 National League was one of the best pennant races ever. You had the Giants, the Cubs, and the Pirates, who were by far the three best teams in baseball, all in the same league. They spent the whole season just kind of a little bit seesawing back and forth, all within a few games of each other. Um, so, so the Cubs, the Cubs go to New York to play a four-game series. So on September 23rd, we've got this extraordinarily important game at at the at the old Polo Ground. At this point, there's maybe less two weeks left in the season. Yeah, it could, week, could certainly, absolutely, could have gone any way. So every single game was was absolutely vital. The game's tied when Al Bridwell, an Ohioan from Friendship, Ohio, down south near again near Portsmouth, he lived his whole life in Ohio. Al Bridwell, a great player for the Giants, steps to the plate after a Fred Merkel single. First and third, two outs. All they need is one hit to bring McCormick home from third, and the Giants will win a huge game against the Cubs and take control of the National League in the final week of the 1908 season. We talked to Sam Pathy about the craziness that happens next. Let's talk about the game. So it's the bottom of the ninth inning. And they get runners on the corner. So runners on first and third for the, for the home Giants. Tie ball game. Southern Ohio and Al Bridwell steps to the plate for the Giants with a chance to win the game. 
that really do some serious damage to the Cubs' hopes. Right. Um, what happens next? Bridwell, Bridwell gets the hit and, and just trying to describe the scene. Right. Well, Al Bridwell from uh, Friendship, Ohio, down by Portsmouth, um, he comes up, he hits a single right, kind of right through the box. It, it ends up between a second base and the second baseman goes out into center field. Uh, the, the, the Giants runner on third, Moose McCormick, comes around and scores. Um, Fred Merkel, who we're talking about, was on first base at the time. He had, he had single, so he's on first base. Uh, Merkel starts heading to second base. About halfway to second base, he stops, starts heading to the dugout. The assumption is the Giants had, had won the game 2-1. to one. Um, so, so, so that, so the, the, the scene is set at this point, the Giants are on the verge of, of winning this game. Um, fans start pouring out onto the field, um, thousands of them, you know, this was a gigantic win for the Giants also it, uh, at, um, at the Polo Grounds at the time and at most stadiums, fans, when the game was, were over, could actually go across the field and head to a larger exit and help, help get folks out of, out of, out of the park quicker. So, so, um, thousands of folks on the field, um, you know, we'll talk about the, the question about, so, so the ball's in the center field. What happens to it, and how, do, how, do, how, is, how does Merkel get out? Yeah. Well, um, the, the, many, many stories. Uh, did, did the center fielder for the Cubs uh, pick up the ball? Did he throw it to the infield, which some people say? Did one of the fans, the Giants fans in, in the outfield, actually grab the ball? Um, if it got back into the infield, who got it? Was, was, did a fan get it? Did one of the Cub infielders get it? Uh, were one of the Giants out there at that point getting it? Um, there's reports that someone threw the ball into the crowd. You know, that, that's unsubstantiated, yeah, but I've heard we, that uh, more than once. Yeah, the Giants' third base coach, I think, is the one. Yeah, get, is... Just, just to kind of get rid of it, maybe get because because at that point, everybody was... Uh, uh, I, I think maybe they got wind of it and they were trying to get Merkel back out on the field or get Merkel back. Um, so anyways, Johnny Evers is the Cubs' second baseman. He gets a ball. Could have been a ball thrown in from, from the dugout. I mean, nobody <laughs> really knows. Um, so he stands on second base uh, for a force out. And uh, Hank O'Day, who's the umpire, at that moment calls Merkel out. So essentially, um, Merkel is out on a force play. You know, the, the rules are kind of like they were today, and it's kind of the same rule today if there's a runner on, say, first and third with two outs. If somebody hits a ball to the infielder, they throw the second base, the runner's out, and... Just, the, because, the, just because the runner scores before technically right. that out's made, yeah. as long as it's all made in the same continuous play, right. especially in 1908, they would call him out. A thousand people on the field, and they can't continue the game. Technically, the game should go into extra innings at this right. point. Right, right. Um, and so they decide, Hank O'Day decides to call the game a tie. He calls a tie, right, because thousands of fans on the field. It was also a, a late-season game, so it was getting dark. And he said, well, because of darkness, because of thousands of fans on the field, this game is over. It's a one-to-one tie. And, and, and he left it at that at that moment. National League Commissioner Harry Proleum has a decision to make. He lives in New York. Everyone's telling him that he needs to just rule on the side of the Giants, that this is a... Big misunderstanding, um, and they should be given the game. But Pulliam goes against that advice, and he actually makes a statement. We asked Sam about Harry Pulliam um, and about the decision that he makes, the controversial decision to add another game on to the end of the season, a playoff game, essentially what would become a one-game playoff between the Giants and the Cubs back in New York. 
So, at this point, obviously, the Giants are protesting, saying they've won the game and they've taken control of the National League standings. The, the case goes basically to the National League president, Harry Pulliam, at that point. Um, and he takes a couple of days to, to decide this, does he not? Yeah, and, and, uh, and the National League president um, comes out with a statement saying, in part, I'm a sportsman and I abhor the fact that this game would end on a uh, mental error by, by a player. I would like to have had it end as a, a, a physical action on the field. But as, as, as the gentleman who must uh, abide by baseball laws and rules, the uh, Merkel did not hit second base. He is forced out. The run does not count. The game is tied under the circumstances of the, of the, the fans on the field and the uh, darkness issue. Uh, the game ends as a tie. And it will only be replayed if necessary at the end of the season. Our cover photo for this episode, if you go look at it uh, on SoundCloud or, or on Facebook or the website, um, is a picture of Coogan's Bluff, the bluff that overlooks the field in New York where that playoff game was played. I can't tell you how crazy it was there. Sam says there was upwards of 200,000 people there. Um, you know, a stadium that holds about 25,000, he said. So it's pretty insane, but it's one of the great early sporting events in American history. The Cubs-Giants 1908 one-game playoff, all thanks to Fred Merkel's boner. It was something that Major League Baseball had never seen before. Well, here you have this incredible pennant race the whole season. I got all the fans all agitated. Uh, The Giant fans think that the Merkel game was stolen from them. Had, had, Had McCormick score been, been allowed, the Giants would have won the pennant and they didn't. There was a tremendous uh, craziness going on in the town. Um, it, there, there was talk that, that in the New York press that outside and inside that stadium there were over 200,000 people yeah. trying to get in the park. Um, there were so many people that, that, that got in the park and were in the park that the Giants actually closed the park an hour and a half before game time which means many fans who had legitimate tickets could not get in. Uh, some folks tried, started setting the, the, the park on fire. A, a wall was knocked down. Folks started you know, trying to get in. Um, before this all happened, there were, there, there were death threats against Cubs players. They had to get a police escort to get in the park. There were so many people around the park, the umpires could not get in, and the game was actually delayed. Yeah, it took them hours before, to get in. Right, before the umpires could even get in the game. Um, Cubs fans, Cubs players at the game uh, called it a mob scene. They called it a riot. And, oh, yeah, they still had to play a baseball game. So it was uh, uh, really played under really trying circumstances. Well, New York fans can be difficult to deal with. I've been to some <laughs> Yankee Stadium games. Even this year I went and saw Cardinals-Yankees with, uh, with my wife, and they're a handful the game would see pitching performances by two of early baseball's superstar pitchers. Christy Matthewson, worn down from a tough end of the season as the Giants had to win every possible game they could, is throwing for uh, the New York Giants at home. Another pitcher who becomes the hero of this day, a man by the name of Mordecai Three Finger Brown. We talked to Sam Pathy. Where did he get that nickname Three Finger? Uh, and what did Mordecai Brown do? to become the hero of the 1908 one-game playoff. 
And it's interesting, uh, Mordecai Brown didn't even start the game for the Cubs. Um, Christy, Christy Mathewson was starting for the Giants. He was their ace. He won 37 games in um, 1908. He'd go on to win 373 games. A workhorse pitcher, right. one of the most famous pitchers. Right, one of the most famous pitchers. So, so Mordecai three, Three-Finger Brown was the star of the Cubs. Um, he won 29 games that year, and he, he got it. He got his moniker. As a child, he grew up in Indiana on a farm, and he got his hand caught in, in, in a farm implement, and it cut the tip off one finger and pretty much mangled down another finger. <laughs> so you're thinking, my God, this poor guy, what kind of life is he going to have? Well, you know, with having those stubs on his hand, he, 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 he learned to throw a pretty good curveball because of it. So he becomes the star. So his name is Three Finger Brown because he literally has... He really had three full fingers on wow. his right hand. And uh, yeah, I mean, he won 20 games, six straight years. He's in the Hall of Fame. So he, he made a fantastic career out of, uh, out of a physical disability, really. Um, so Feaster gets knocked around the first inning and they bring in Mordecai three finger Brown. It was it in the first inning. It was in the first inning. The the Giants were winning one to nothing. They had runners on second and third. Um, so instead of having the game get out of hand in the first inning, um, player manager Frank Chance goes out, pulls Feaster, brings in Mordecai Brown, the, um, the uh, overworked star of, of the Cubs pitching staff. They bring him in. Uh, Brown gets out of the first inning. So at first inning, the Giants are only up one to nothing. So the Cubs go to work in the fourth inning. They score four runs off Christy Mathewson, just a series of single, you know, just a bunch of hits. They, they get four runs, and they're up four to one. Um, the game goes on. The, 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 the Cubs end up winning this game four to two. You know, m- many Cub uh, historians call it maybe the most clutch pitched game in Cubs history up until even – you know, we're not going to include any of the, the playoffs, the World Series from last year. But up until that point, that was probably the game, was the clutch game. You know, he's he's, he's playing in the middle of a mob scene in a riot. and uh, He's not know, even supposed to pitch that right, And he, he throws basically he's been, a complete game. Right, he's been overworked, and he just shuts down the Giants. The Cubs the Cubs win the game. And uh, with that, they win the, the 1908 uh, National League pennant. Um the Cubs are barely able to get off the field. Mordecai Brown and some of these other guys after that last out. Again, they get another police escort just to right. leave the stadium. Yeah, Frank Chance, actually, the player manager, was actually assaulted. He had a, got a neck injury. He got punched in the neck, and they were grabbing the players. Um, yeah, they, they really could hardly get off the field. It was, just, it was an absolute mob. The Cubs go on to easily defeat the Detroit Tigers to win the 1908 World Series and the, and the championship. It would be their last title until they beat the Cleveland Indians last fall in 2016. 108 years of futility. All thanks to Merkel and his boner and his boner play. You know, Merkel tells a story when he's in his 40s. He goes to a church, and the preacher knows that he's there, and he's visiting this church one time, and he says, I'm sorry to report that I'm from the same hometown of Toledo, Ohio, that's another member of our audience today, that bonehead, Fred Merkel. Merkel couldn't believe it. He walks out of the church with his family. He couldn't escape this play. Much like Bill Buckner in the 1986 World Series for the Boston Red Sox and the ball goes between his legs and they end up ultimately losing another cursed team that it took almost 100 years to win a title. Merkel could almost never shake this, this being known as the bonehead for the mistake he made by not touching second base in 1908. He goes on to have a great career. Uh, we asked Sam about, about his career after the boner play. 
And even living with that, he actually had a really good major league career. He played 14 years. Um, he played 10 years with the Giants. Um, he actually played four years with the Cubs from 1917 to 1920. He was a first baseman, uh, had about 1,600 major league hits, hit about 275, would have made a couple of all-star games if the all-star game was invented by then. I mean, he was, he was a good player, um, but, 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 he, but he lived with this for the rest of his life. And once he left baseball, he kind of divorced himself from the game because uh, he was maybe a little bit similar to, a, to kind of like a Bill Buckner character in sure. a way. But Fred Merkel wasn't the only one affected by this play. Al Bridwell, the Ohioan who, who hit the ball into play, hit the single into center that started all this from Friendship, Ohio, Portsmouth area. He says, I wish I never would have hit that ball and saved that poor kid Merkel all this grief. Um, Al Bridwell also had a great career uh, in baseball. But Harry Pulliam, the National League Commissioner, the one who made the decision about the game and to have the game replayed, at the end of the year, faces down his own demons from this controversy. We talked to Sam Pathy one last time about what happens to Harry Pulliam just months after making this controversial decision in 1908. That, that play was really a, a, a flashpoint for, for a lot of folks, and then the decision that Pulliam made was a flashpoint. Yeah, he made the right decision. Um, he has essentially said that, you know, following baseball rules, Merkel is out. You know, our, uh, Hank O'Day, the umpire, made the right call. Of course, uh, Pulliam lived in New York. He had a deal with a lot of folks who said that, you know, you stole that game from us. Um, he lived with, you know, he, he lived with the baseball establishment. Many folks did not like the decision that he made. And he was kind of an uptight guy anyways, but, but a couple months after the season, he has a nervous breakdown. Um, it was all a little bit too much for him to, to handle. And unfortunately, by the next summer, he actually uh, committed suicide. He shot himself um, in July of 1909. So yeah. he was dead. He was At the only, New York Athletic Club. Right, only 40 years old. He, he killed himself over this. So, so certainly lives, lives, lives were made by, by this, uh, the lead-up to the Merkel game, the Merkel game. and the aftermath, lives were made and, and lives were destroyed. From Garfield's tomb to the Serpent Mound From the big cities to the river towns First in flight making history There's so many books you need to see I like reading And I like reading Tippecanoe and Tyler too From the Queen City to Lake Erie Blue Edison and a man on the moon so many books, which will we choose? I like reading I like reading Today is Lee Lowenfish's book Baseball's Ferocious, Ferocious Gentleman from 2007 A great book about Branch Rickey um, Branch Rickey, Baseball's Ferocious Gentleman uh, He's been on some panels with our guest Roger Engels um, listened to a lot of interviews when I was learning about about Ricky and doing my research, and Lee Lowenfish is the man. So check out his book, Baseball's Ferocious Gentleman. Also, check out Sam Pathy's um, Wrigley Field Year by Year, uh, an incredibly fun book if you have a Chicago Cubs fan in your life who wants to relive their 2016 uh, World Championship. It's a great look at every single year that Wrigley Field's been open. Um, also, our 
Other guests, Rick Hune has got a number of good books. Check out the Chalmers Race. It's about Nap Lajoie, 1910, Cleveland Indian star. Uh, Lajoie and Ty Cobb's uh, historic chase for the batting title. The winner basically was going to get a car, a Chalmers automobile. Uh, and there's a lot that goes into that 1910 year. Um, and he looks at all that stuff. Rick was really cool. We got to have him back. Uh, we're going to have to do another baseball episode sometime in the future. There's just too much to get to. Uh, but check out his book, Chalmers Race. You can find that on Amazon as well. That's going to do it here for our penultimate episode, episode 14, Ohio versus baseball, which means we've just got one show left before the end of season one. Our guests were super excited. Our friend and world-famous musician from OAR, uh, Columbus's own very famous rock band, Jerry DePizzo, is going to join us. We're going to talk about Ohio versus Hollywood. We're going to talk about the Warner Brothers, Jack Warner, and old-timey Youngstown at the turn of the century in the early 1900s, and how some brothers from Youngstown end up changing the film industry entirely and create Warner Brothers. Uh, it's a crazy story, um, and we can't wait to bring that one to you. So looking forward to having Jerry on. We're going to sit down next week and talk about old-timey Youngstown. Uh, thank you guys so much. Remember, we got one more episode this season. We're going to take a break for a couple of months. We're going to do some historical writing. We're going to set up more interviews. We already started, went down to the William T. Sherman house this week in Lancaster, Ohio, met some great people down there. So we are getting geared up for season two. Um, and again, we ask you to rate and review the show. Just share it with your friends at the next cocktail party. Also, we got awesome t-shirts if you look at the Instagram, um, and we'll make those available. If you ever want to reach me, if you want to try to buy a shirt, We'll put those on the website, but until then, you probably got to email me at ohiovtheworld at gmail.com. Um, thank you guys so much. This has been episode 14, Ohio versus Baseball. Take it easy. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of the new Medal of Honor podcast from Evergreen Podcasts, brought to you in partnership with the National Medal of Honor Museum. In each three-minute episode, we'll learn about a different service member who distinguished him or herself through an act of valor. We'll include stories from the Civil War to Iraq and Afghanistan, and from all branches of the military. We'll talk about service members who were overlooked for the medal at first due to their race or religion, and about those who were celebrated at the time. We'll hear stories of soldiers like Audie Murphy, future Hollywood star who mounted a burning tank to hold off German infantry in World War II. And people like Dr. Mary Edwards Walker, a Civil War Army doctor and the only woman to receive the Medal of Honor so far. Learn about these heroes and more wherever you get your podcasts.